You know, as we come into really what is Paul's last turn against the, the Ephesian heresy, we're dealing in some sense with the, with the subject of money and materialism. But as I, as I think about money, you know, money gets a, a really bad reputation. Money gets a bad rap. When you think about it, it gets blamed for, for a number of things. It gets blamed for uh, the marriage is failing. It, it gets blamed for business is failing. It's one of those things that there never seems to be enough of uh, in our lives. And it seems that as we look around to those around us that they seem to have just enough, Right? We want what they have in our lives, and, we, and my dad would always says, uh, I, I love to have what they have in my life and for them to have more. And that just seems like a, a good way of, you know, of blessing them and blessing me in return. But money can, can really ruin things. Now, it can ruin things in our own personal lives, and it can ruin things in the life of the church. Now, nobody has demonstrated this better than, than two individuals in the 1980s. You've got Jim Baker, and you've got Jimmy Swaggart, and, and most of you will know those names, right? And you think about seeing them on television, you can think about Swaggart's tearful apology that he issued on television, you can think about the time that, that they spent in prison. I mean, you can, you can think about how their ministries just collapsed and imploded upon themselves. I found this tremendous quote that, that really characterizes their ministry. Speaking of Baker and Swaggart, uh, an author for The New Yorker wrote and said, they epitomized the excesses of the 1980s. The greed, the love of glitz, and the shamelessness, which in their case was so pure as to amount to a kind of innocence. I mean, that's, that's scathing. That's, that's not praising them for being innocent. That's writing and describing their greed. The fact that they would go on television and say, look, if you'll send me money, I'll pray for you. If you'll send me uh, a financial contribution, a gift, then God will bless you. They were invoking hucksterism. They were trying to say that God's word is for sale, that God's blessings can be gained from financial contribution. I mean, that, that didn't stop with them. That carries on even to our day. There was a pastor in Houston last summer and this guy was, he was in, in a, really just a terrible state. I, I can't imagine how he could get up in the morning. You see, he had a situation, a problem going on that is something I've not encountered, but I'm pretty sure if I ever encountered, I would just stay at home, turn all the lights off, and cry a lot. Listen to maybe some soft rock in the background. Eat lots of chocolate or ice cream or whatever soothes. But this guy needed new propellers for his helicopter. He needed new blades for his helicopter. I mean, this is one of those things that that. I mean, maybe this is a need you have, and I don't, I, I, I don't know. If, if this is a need for you, and you have really experienced heartbreak because of needing new blades for your helicopter, I apologize if this in any way offends you. But really, we need to talk later. And so this guy wrote, and he said, look, helicopter needs new blades. It's the church's helicopter. It's not my helicopter. And so he went to the church, and he sent them all a letter. And he said, if each and every one of you would help me to raise the $50,000 to buy new blades for this helicopter, that in 52 days... Or 52 weeks, and nobody wants to put God on, on a leash. He said, God will bless you in kind with transportation. And so he wrote them, and he said, hey, look, look, I need $50,000. If you'll help me out, God will turn around and bless you in either 52 days or 52 weeks with transportation. 
He was saying that the Bible and godliness is <laughs> it's a means of great gain, and a very real gain, in his case, new blades for his helicopter. Or you can think about the other. There's a pastor I read about in North Carolina, and recently he built a, a very small house for him, his wife, and his three children. It's only around 8,400 square feet. And so I have, a, I have a hard time understanding how they might make it in, in such a confined space, but somehow God will bless this family. And he got criticized for, for spending that money. Now, over and over again, we see just excessive displays of wealth by people in churches, do we not? But I read an account this week of John Wesley. And Wesley, who's credited with being the father of Methodism, although Wesley himself did not ever have a desire to leave the Anglican church. But Wesley goes in, and he figured out in 1730 how much money it would cost him to pay expenses and just to live. And that amount came out to 28 pounds, 28 pounds sterling. Now, Wesley had an income in 1731 of 30 pounds. And so he looked at it and said, man, I am... Big spending. I mean, I got, I got all kinds of cash coming in, and he said, look, I've got two pounds left over. And so he took those two pounds, and he gave them away. He gave them to the poor. Well, the next year rolled around, and it was a banner year for John Wesley. God doubled his income. He brought in 60 pounds the next year. And so he looked at it. He looked at what his expenses were. looked at how much money he brought in. He said, God has blessed me beyond measure. And he gave away all of the increase. You see, in all of Wesley's ministry, he realized that what he needed to survive and live on was so much less than he brought in. Furthermore, he realized what a trap the love of money is, what a snare materialism is. So that by the end of Wesley's ministry, he was making the equivalent of $160,000 a year and living on $20,000 a year. You see, Wesley realized that the pursuit of godliness is indeed great gain, but that godliness is the gain. We pursue godliness, not what we get as a result of it. Let me read for us the words that Paul wrote the church in Ephesus and to Timothy, his worker, will be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Paul wrote and said, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, verse 3 really sets up and is in some ways a thesis statement for what Paul is going to unfold in 3 through 10. Paul sets up in verse 3, and he says that, look, we've got these guys teaching heresy. They're teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God. Now, if you look at the second half of verse 2, Paul's words were, teach these things, right? He's, he's telling Timothy over and over again throughout the letter that there are certain things that he needs to be teaching, and there are certain uh, falsehoods, certain lies, certain heresies that he needs to combat with the truth, right? So Paul comes in and he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, then he needs to go after them. These are people that are heretics. These are people that are opposed to the truth of the Word of God. And so we see that in the first verse that Paul writes and he says that, look, true teaching does two things. True teaching, we find that it is in accordance, it, it works, it is, in fact, the Word of God. So if somebody stands before you and they say, hey, let me just let me set this to aside for a little, little while. Let me tell you something that generally works, a principle I've observed in time. We begin to think, okay, okay, I'm going to go with you for a little while. And, and I'm going to trust that you get back to the text real quick. I'm going to go with you. You get crazy, I'm bailing. Because this is where the truth is, right? The truth is in the Word of God. It's not in any crazy scheme that I might come up with. It might be good, and you guys should definitely buy in on the ground level because it gets expensive when we get to the top. But the truth is in this. And so Paul tells it. He says, Timothy, evaluate the teaching that you hear with the Word of God. Man, we could take that same truth and apply it to our lives today that, that all the things we hear on television, all the things we read on bumper stickers, and all the things that people put underneath our windshield wipers, that we take that truth and we look at it alongside the lens of Scripture. And we can only tell if it is right and if it is true in as much as it finds itself working in line with the Word of God. Working in line with the Word of God. And Paul tells him, secondly, he says, look. He says, if it's true, if it's valid, if it, if it is in line with the words of our Lord Jesus, with sound words, with words which produce healthy living, then it should produce godliness. It should produce godliness. So he, he gives Timothy a quick test for how to evaluate this heresy. We've already established, he says, Timothy, does it accord with what you've heard me teach? Is it in line with the things that you've heard me teach, the Bible? And he says, secondarily, what results from this teaching? He says, Timothy, look around, check out Ephesus, look at the places where this teaching is impacting people in their lives. Look at their marriages. He says, look, this, this teaching that people sit under, this teaching that they hear, is it producing healthy marriages? Is it causing people to look introspectively at their lives, to evaluate their heart motives, and to, to fall down before God and ask for forgiveness? Is it creating unity? Is it creating harmony in the gospel? You see, this teaching, if it is true, should accord with godliness. It should produce godliness in the lives of those hearing. I mean, that's a quick way that you and I can, can look at it. television preachers, at bumper stickers, and all these things. Is, 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 
my application of what they tell me to do producing godliness in my life? Is it producing godliness in my life? No, it could produce joy, it could produce wealth, it could produce uh, all of these types of things, but if it doesn't produce godliness, then you shouldn't abide by it. If it doesn't produce godliness, then we absolutely should not abide by it. Now, Paul goes in, and he essentially sets us up with an if-then statement. Three, he says, look, if you have this, and four, then this is what it will be like. This is what it's going to look like. In four, five, four and five, he describes a lot of things about the heretics. He says, look, this is who they are. This is what results from their teaching, and this is why they teach these things. Now, read carefully with me. Paul, describing this person, says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Well, man, that's, that's not very flattering, is it? Now, Paul could say, look, he's puffed up with conceit, and he's got a modicum of, of, of information that he works with. He's decently intelligent. He, he is, you know, Timothy... You just need to work with this guy. You just need to work with these people. You can get them there. You're a talented teacher. You can get these people where they're going. No, he, he, he looks at their teaching and says, look, this guy is puffed up. He imagines that his mind is a giant balloon filled with what? Hot air. With nothing. He says this guy is, is puffed up. He's out of his mind. He understands Nothing. Paul uses incredibly graphic language to describe this person. Now, if you've been paying attention as we've spent these months in 1 Timothy, the wheels in your mind should be turning, and you should be maybe thinking back to earlier on in the book. You see, in in chapter 1, in verse 7, Paul wrote for the first time about the heretics. And he said, look, these heretics, they set themselves up as teachers of the law. Right? They want to be teachers of the law, but in reality, Paul said, they understand nothing. They want to be known as one thing, but in reality, there is no substantive material. There's nothing of substance in their teaching. There's no substance to their lives. They simply like to be recognized. They simply like to stand in front of people and to pontificate, to use a whole lot of big words over and over and over again. Super cal- what? Or something like that. Likely it has an I-N-G or an L-Y on the end. People are like, is it a participle? Is it an adverb? I don't know. It's a big word, though. You should write it down and look it up later. And they use large words so that people aren't able to tell the substance of what they're teaching. And they're still at it. Paul says he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. Now looking at the person a little more carefully, Paul writes, he says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Another translation might say quibbles, and I think that's a great word, and you should write that down. But Paul says, look, this is effectively what this person wants to do. They want to stay away from from the middle. They want to stay away from this because this is easily verified. right? The word of God is easily verified. What they want to do is go over here to the sensational. They want to come over, and you remember that Paul told us in chapter 1 that they're concerned with myths and endless genealogies. And they want to come over here, and they want to camp out here. 
They want to talk about how all of these things are going to play out. They're going to have prophetic utterances. God has spoken to me. This is a revealed word that God has given to me. Don't worry if you don't find it in there. I've got it on the highest authority that this is true. And when you hear somebody talk like that, this person is claiming for themselves special revelation. This person is claiming for themselves that God actually came to them and said something to them. And you don't need to compare it to the Word of God because they are speaking the Word of God. I got news for you. You're watching TV, you get something in the mail, or somebody walks up to you on the street and they says, look, I've got it on the highest authority that this is truth. You either turn around and walk the other way, you turn your television off, or you light that thing on fire. Because this person is absolutely lying to you. Special revelation is closed. God does speak and he has spoken. And he's spoken this. You don't need to watch the TV. You don't need to flip over to, to TV preachers to figure out what God is still saying. Because he has spoken and is speaking through the word of God. And I don't care what authority they got it on. Whether it was a fortune cookie or the inside of a wrapper at Subway. It's still worthless. Amen? So Paul writes, he says, look, they're puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. All they want to talk about is, are those things on the periphery. All they want to talk about is those things that are, are outside of, of, of the Word of God. They have an unhealthy craving for these things, for controversy, for quarrels about words. That's all they want to do is get people stirred up. And Paul says, this is what happens when you engage in this type of teaching. This is what this type of teaching leads to. You'll remember that, that teaching that accords with sound words produces what? It produces godliness. But this teaching, it produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Now, orthodox teaching produces godliness. Say it with me. Orthodox teaching produces godliness. Now this teaching, I'm not going to have you repeat after me because it's a whole long list of words and surely some of you are reading from the NIV and it would confuse me. So let me just, let me just read these out loud again. So orthodox teaching produces godliness. That's right. This teaching produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Now if you were to take these words and to write them down in a list, you would surely need to make this list move to the right because, in essence, these people are on a slippery slope. In essence, what Paul writes here is that there is a, uh, a crumbling, in effect. There is a, uh, man, I cannot think of the word. See, that's just how bad it is. I think about these words, and it sets me on this steady downhill progression. Paul writes, he says, look, First of all, it starts off with envy. These people that are caught up in describing these things and, 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 are, and are moving and talking about these things that are solely on the periphery, it starts off with envy. You clearly see how this works. Man, so-and-so's got a bigger following than I do. i got to make my talk all that more sensational. So-and-so's got, a, got a, bitter, a bigger and better ministry than I do. I've got to make my talk where if people don't hear me, God will strike them dead. Oh, man, that's good. I should have thought of that earlier. And they start adding all of these other things on top of their teaching to make their ministry, to make their progression of thought better than those around them. Paul said it starts with envy. Then it goes to dissension. You see, just as they are envious of one another, now there is no harmony 
in their advance of this false gospel. They're fighting together. There's infighting. He says it produces slander. As they turn on one another, so they use their words and they turn against one another. They begin to say things in an effort to malign the ministry of those around them. And then it leads to evil suspicions. They begin to think, oh, everybody is out to get me. The reason you're not paranoid is because you don't see the same things I see. You'd be paranoid too if everybody was out to get you. It's a reality you just haven't bought into yet. They're paranoid. They have evil suspicions. And it creates constant friction. Now think about how this teaching has met out in some of the different churches. You've got somebody that comes in and they're, they're putting forth this teaching, and it, I mean, it, it just really sounds too good to be true. They come in and they tell you, look, guys, God wants you to be healthy. You're like, I like where he's going. Guys, God doesn't just want you to be healthy. He wants you to be a beacon of health. And God is so concerned and so preoccupied that, that, that you are an embodiment of health but he doesn't stop there because what good is health if you don't have money to spend to do fun things with? God wants you to be wealthy. God wants, let's just say, when I say wealthy, I think you're setting the bar too low. God wants you to have the type of problems that you need $50,000 for helicopter blades. That's what God wants for you. I mean, this is, by and large, a lot of the teaching that we see now. This prosperity gospel which says that God wants you to have a full and abundant life. And they define that in terms of health and wellness. Health and wealth. They define that in terms of God wants you to have everything you've ever wanted. No, God wants you to have Him. And He is all you've ever needed. And He is all you should want. See, Paul says that when this teaching comes in that is in contradiction, it is conflicting with the word of God. It produces envy. It produces dissension, slander, evil suspensions, and constant friction. Because everyone is vying to be on top of the pyramid. Everybody wants you to follow them the thing they say that is best. And so it results in disintegration of the body. It disrupts, it destroys the church. It cannot be tolerated. It must be gone after. It must be removed from the body. Or like a cancer, it will spread and it will continue to create disunity. I'm talking about the person. Paul talks about this person. He says, look, these are the things it produces. Now, this is who they are. They are depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth. They're depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth. This person has already said, Paul has already written of them, that they are conceited, they're puffed up, they don't understand anything, there's nothing between the ears. Now he says, look, they are depraved in the mind. Their, their mind is this way because they have abandoned the centrality of the word of God. They've sought to effect change on their own, and as such they have destroyed their conception of who God is. And as a result of doing that, they are deprived of the truth. See, the truth is here a substitution for the gospel. 
This person found something that sounded so good, so they began to put it forward, they began to discuss it and, and try and draw others into it. And their mind is depraved. They're completely opposed to the truth, and Paul tells us here that they are deprived of the truth. And then we find the motivation for all of this. Paul writes in the second half of verse 5, he says, Imagining godliness is a means of gain. Now I know you can go on and you can read some of the early accounts of Jim Baker and of Jimmy Swagger. And man, to read some of the ministry these guys did early in their careers is amazing. And I'm not God, I can't say whether or not God was in it and whether or not they were pure from the beginning, but it certainly has the guise, or certainly has the appearance of purity in the beginning. I mean, Swagger got offered a music deal and he shunned it. And you see over and over again where people come to them and try and control their ministry and they say no. But at some point along the line, they started pursuing godliness as a means of gain instead of recognizing that godliness is the gain. Godliness is the thing to be pursued, not the gain that can stem from it. Remember when we think about our own lives, we begin to think about the reason we pursue godliness, the reason that we read our Bibles, the reason that we pray, the reason that we attend church, the reason that we do life together with other people. Are you doing it because of what you can get? Or are you doing it because of what you can become, of what God can do to you as a result of your pursuit? You see, because Paul continues to write, and in verse 6, he says, look, they completely missed it. They completely missed the big picture of this whole thing. He says, they imagine godliness is a means of, of gain. In verse 6, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You'll remember that Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, had something to say about contentment, Right? Paul goes on and he, he talks about how he has rejoiced in the Lord that the, the church in Philippi is once again having opportunity to support him. But in verse 11 he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he goes on to describe that. He goes on to describe contentment. He says, I know how to be brought low. Essentially, I know how to be poor. I know how to abound effectively to be rich. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, being full and being starving, abundance and need. And then in 13, has the most stunning commentary on what it is to be content. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul has realized and recognized that contentment is insanely difficult. And it is only through the empowering and equipping of God that we are able to be content. And so here in verse 6, Paul com he combines godliness with contentment. He says, if you can bring these two things together, then you can have great gain. You can have great gain. And he goes on. And he gives the rationale for this in 7 and 8. He says, look, but godliness with contentment is great gain. How do you know that? Because, in verse 7, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything 
out of the world. People often say you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I've actually seen this. It was terrifying. (laughs) Certain cars should not be sold for private use. Like, maybe they needed two hearses. Why does he say Florida or else? I don't know. And so he says, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. Effectively, look, you were born uh, naked, right? We we told our four-year-old this. He said, what was I wearing when I was born? I said, nothing. He said, surely a diaper. No, nothing. You brought nothing into the world. You're going to take nothing with you. You can't take it with you when you go. Some of us are, are... adding things to our own personal fortunes and and building our own little kingdoms or fiefdoms or whatever you want to call it in in, in a way that is just a celebration of greed, a celebration of materialism. Man, you cannot take that with you when you go. Enjoy charity. Enjoy following in the vein of John Wesley who, even though he made $160,000 a year, learned what it is to be content with living on twenty. You see, we are so conflicted in, in, in those things that we take in on our television, that we see on billboards, and we even see around us in our friends. It's a difficult thing, this pursuit of contentment. But Paul assures us in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Man, what we want to do is we want to say, look, Godliness with contentment is great gain, and and that was great for the first century. But Paul, godliness with capitalism, that is tremendously great gain. You see, Paul forgot the adverb. It's tremendously great gain. Godliness with capitalism. It's the Savior that Paul didn't know was going to come. It's the thing that Paul, he forgot. You remember Paul, he, he was in prison some. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul had a hard life. Contentment wasn't hard for him. But Paul, for us, contentment? Maybe the Greeks got more here. Maybe he says food, lots of it, clothing, enough to sell to make additional money. No, Paul says with food and clothing, with these we will be content. What Paul is driving at is that contentment can never be gained as an individual endeavor. You see, the Stoics writing around this time saw contentment as the highest thing that they could attain to. They said, if I could attain to full self-sufficiency, then I would be set. If I could attain to full self-sufficiency that I didn't need anyone else, that I didn't need anything else around me, then I would be fully taken care of. And I would be at the, the zenith, I would be at the height of what it is that humans could possibly attain to. I mean, this is why it's so vitally important that we recognize Philippians 4.13 for what it is. It's not a passage that tells us that we can overcome all of the different things in our lives. It's a commentary that we need the supernatural equipping of God even to be content. Paul says you can be content with food and with clothing because God is doing a work in your heart to produce godliness. You can be content with the meagerest of provisions because God is doing a work in your heart to produce godliness in you. To produce godliness in you. But we recognize that money is so dangerous. 
we recognize that money can be so dangerous. Being itself uh, amoral. So it's neither immoral or moral. It is amoral, but it can be used for both and towards both ends. Paul writes in verse 9, and he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now the key word in here is they desire. Man, they, they want, not money, but they want to be rich. Now, it means the same thing in Paul's day as it does in our day. They look around, they, they are get really frustrated by watching one of Apple's keynote addresses to find out that the new iPad is, in fact, 28% lighter than the current one with a longer battery life and a really beefed-up Wi-Fi. It's supremely frustrating. It seems like every time we get a new piece of technology, a new car, the next generation comes out the following year, and it just makes us dissatisfied with the thing that we have in our hands. We love our house until we visit someone else's house. We love our car until we drive someone else's car. We love the way our kids behave until we see someone else's kids behave. We are in a society which wants us to compare everyone alongside everyone else, and we base our contentment upon whether or not we are better off than those around us. We base our contentment on whether or not we are doing better financially, physically, mentally, and emotionally than those we encounter. So we tend to base contentment on what we observe in other people's lives. But how does Paul Paul base contentment? He gives us a low baseline of food, clothing. With these we'll be content. And even in that, only supernaturally. Paul says it's, it's through this desire they fall into temptation. They, they, they trip, they fall into it, and he describes that temptation. He says it is a snare into many senseless and harmful desires. You know, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker didn't start off with air-conditioned dog houses. Jim Baker didn't start off his ministry by ordering $10,000 worth of cinnamon rolls to have delivered to his hotel because he liked the smell of of cinnamon rolls. I mean, these are things that as we pursue, that as we desire riches, that we fall into temptation and we find ourselves doing things that are just stupid. They're, they're senseless. They're harmful. They are, in fact, stupid. And things that at the onset of this thing, we, we would surely think that never, never would we head down this road. Paul tells us, he says, these senseless and harmful desires, they plunge people into ruin and to destruction. Now, what Paul is using here is a word to describe what happens when a ship takes on too much water. It sinks, and it sinks to the bottom. When it's on the bottom, it's worthless. And Paul says, secondarily, it, it ends up in destruction. Now, he's not talking about partial destruction, what he's talking about is raising the thing to the ground. There's nothing left to it. This is what happens when we desire riches. Because Paul writes in verse 10, and he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but he says it is this particular love of money. It's the love of money. It's this deal where 
You love the things that other people have. You watch their lives, you see their wardrobes, you see their families, and you imagine yourself living their lives. You imagine yourself driving their cars, living in their homes, having all of the amenities and all the many things that they have, and it is that love, that desire to have things that other people have, which is the road to evil, is the route to all kinds of evil. Furthermore, Paul says, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Nothing illustrates this better than Jesus' encounter with the rich man in Mark 10. Jesus, he's out and he's teaching. He's just beckoning the children to come to him, which must have been an amazing sight. And he's got this rich guy that comes up to him. This guy is is self-satisfied. He is well cared for. He has been an orthodox and a righteous man. In verse 17, it says, The man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has this dialogue with him. says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. This guy had to be thinking, man, I got it. I'm going to travel with these guys. They're going to sleep outside. I'm going to sleep inside because I've got money. Maybe I'll share occasionally. We can double up. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him be loved by God. Now think about this. Jesus knew his next line of questioning. He knew the guy's response. Jesus knew that in just a moment he was going to ask him a question which this man was unwilling to let go of his love. Jesus looks at us. He loves us. He looks at you in in your reticence to relinquish the sin that's plaguing your life. Man, he looks at you and he looks at you in spite of your shortcomings. And he calls you in love, just as he called this man in love. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So Jesus looked at this guy, gave him a course to follow of what it is to show that he would be a follower of Jesus. Verse 22 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, some of us, as Jesus looks at us, And he loves us. We recognize that there is something in our lives that he is calling us to relinquish. That we are unwilling to let go of. And what Paul tells us here in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10 is that some of these people, they desired riches. They desired to be wealthy. They desired to have all of the things that this world could afford them. And they fell into temptation. And just like this rich young man, 
They couldn't let it go. They couldn't let it go. Instead of possessing money, money possessed them. They couldn't let it go, and they went away sorrowful because they recognized you cannot follow Jesus if the reason you pursue godliness is so that you can get something out of it. You must pursue godliness coupled with contentment, recognizing that Jesus has already given you more than you could ever possibly dream. Paul tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Man, for some of us, the difficult thing about this is as we look and evaluate our lives, we realize that what we've been pursuing isn't the gospel, but it's this gospel coupled with all the little caveats and things that make it comfortable and applicable to your life without exacting too much cost. You see, God set before this rich man a quick litmus test of where his allegiance lies. Did they lay with his money, with the security that he could provide himself, or did it lie, in fact, with Jesus? See, God calls us as a church to pursue godliness. He calls us to pursue lives which are totally transformed by the gospel and wholly lived in full surrender to the gospel. But man, some of us, as we look at it, we would rather pursue materialism and wealth than the gospel. Let me pray for us.